Hi, I'm Hugh. And I'm Pat. And we are from the Way of the Buffalo podcast. And you're listening to the Melting Podcast. You're listening to the Melting Podcast. A writing variety show featuring a little of everything. From everyone. Everywhere. Happy December, lexiconosaurs and word chefs. Welcome to episode 21 of the Melting Podcast. I'm your head chef, A.F. Grappin. And I'm your grill mistress, Erin Kazmark. I'm the favorite. Okay. So to start you out today, we have a couple of Stoke the Fire stories based on prompt number four. The company has just received an order of fledges. They did not order these. Bon appetit. Fledge Invasion by A.F. Grappen. Two guys from Shipping and Receiving and Sheryl from Accounts Payable stood in the loading dock. A single box was between them. The three adults shared a single expression, puzzlement. The box wasn't large, but it also wasn't expected. For the fourth time, Sheryl tilted her head to read the tiny label plastered to one side of the box. There was no return address. All it had written on it were the contents. One, gross, fledges. Two of those words made sense, but the third... What the hell is a fledge? Norm from SNR asked. You're going to keep asking that all day? His boss, Scott, shot back. He turned to Cheryl. Well? She bit her lip gently, considering. The only thing to do is open it and see if there's an invoice that has more information. Gently, though, if we can. I'd like to reseal it and send it on its way. She didn't say what she was really thinking. What if a fledge was some sort of living creature that could be hurt by a box cutter? She didn't want to open the flaps and see blood inside. Norm ran a box cutter through the packing tape. The three peered in. Scott was the first to reach inside, bringing his hand up with a small object cupped in his palm. What is that? Cheryl asked. Must be a fledge. She rolled her eyes. Any idea what they're for? Scott tipped the fledge into Norm's hand and reached back into the box. There was a familiar sound of lots of synthetic parts moving against one another as he searched for the included invoice. Finally, he withdrew his hand. Nothing. No clue. No care of, no return address. He scratched at his bald head. I'm stumped. Well, do something with them, Cheryl said. There's no invoice, so they're not my problem. She promptly left SNR, her sensible heels clicking on the floor. Norm raised his eyebrows at his boss. Scott shrugged. Put them somewhere out of the way. If no one comes looking for them in a week, trash them. A week later, Norm found himself staring again at the box. It was unclaimed and unwanted. He reached in and picked out one of the fledges. For a long time, he considered the small object. He didn't throw them out. At first, Cheryl didn't notice anything weird in the office. But on Tuesday, she noticed an oddly shaped bulge in someone's pocket. On Wednesday, nearly the entire office had fledges in pockets, purses, and on their desks. By Friday, the guys in sales had organized an unofficial decorate-your-fledge contest. Cheryl rolled her eyes an average of once every five minutes at seeing the little 
whatever those things were, decorated and dressed in miniature clothes. It baffled her. They didn't look like anything. None of these people knew what the fledges were, but they were all obsessed with them. It made no sense. She ignored the events as well as she could, though the following week, the fledge invasion was in full force. Cheryl walked into the building Monday morning to see a poster for a fledge diorama contest. Someone had spent his weekend making a massive fledge statue that stood inside the front entrance to greet customers. A wave of pranks swept through the office of people swapping their family photos with pictures of fledges. No one changed the photos back. By the end of the year, every Friday was Fledge Friday. Employees started trading fledges for things, office supplies, workloads, and even cafeteria food. Suddenly, everything was valued in fledges. It grew frustrating, but still a little fun for them, knowing that there were only 144 of them around. People were discovered hoarding them, and it was Don and Acquisitions who first managed to collect all 144 and earn a day off of work. One year after the fledges first arrived in the warehouse, the company was gearing up for the end of the week for the first annual Fledge Day celebration, which would feature a costume contest to see who could look most like a fledge. It was also on that day that another box came in, and the S&R guys called a tight-lipped Sheryl down to see it. When Sheryl entered the warehouse floor, both men were standing perfectly still, their eyes staring glassily at nothing. This box was almost big enough for a man to stand in. Like the fledge box, the label said nothing useful, not even a sticker detailing its contents. Scott and Norm had already opened the box. A pair of yellow-skinned creatures stood nearby, both pointing some evil-looking weapon at Cheryl. As she looked around, she realized that everyone on the receiving floor had the same glassy-eyed look as the two men. Come to think of it, so had everyone she'd passed on the way down here. The creatures eyed her. Then one of them touched an appendage to some contraption around what passed for its waist. There was a hum, a flash, and Cheryl was alone in the warehouse. Cheryl didn't have to look upstairs to know that the building was completely empty, except for her. She wondered if the fledges themselves would be gone, too. A piece of paper drifted to the ground where the creatures and the men had been. Cheryl picked it up, but could hardly read it because of how hard she was shaking. Finally, she recognized it. An invoice. Ordered. At least one gross human breeding stock. Identified by Fledge Contact. Handle with care. Cheryl wasn't sure if she should weep or laugh. My Brother's Keeper by J.R.D. Skinner. AnaniConfession.com. Post number 45939. Date, August 7th, 2039. Title, My Brother's Keeper. I swore I'd never tell anyone about the fledge, but I've got to let it go. I'm employed at a zoo in a major metropolitan area. I've been there a long time. The money isn't great, frankly, but I love working with the animals. When I first came on, I was basically an assistant to the docs who would tend the various ailments and injuries that befell our inmates. The more I learned and the tighter the budgets got, the greater my responsibilities. Craig had started in the same place, but he was paid more than I was. 
That jerk was willing to lie his way through any question asked. And management didn't investigate too hard because they were pleased to have this apparent superstar in their midst for so cheap. Two years ago, we were dealing with Bluto. Bluto was one of our two juvenile grizzlies, and he was notorious for overfeeding on the scraps of fried dough the tourists threw into the pit. There was plenty of signage telling them not to do it, but he was smarter than the average bear and had devised a few tricks. Sitting up on his hind legs with his front paws together, or singing wordless songs of hungry lament, for example. That never failed. Okay, so, one night after hours, Bluto is curled up in his cement cave, and we can hear him snorting and moaning to himself. The crowds had all gone home, and there's just a couple maintenance guys on hand to get things in order for the next day. With a little work, we managed to lure Popeye, Bluto's cellmate, away and into a gated area next to the pair's enclosure. Then we dropped some tasty trank meat in front of the cave's entrance. Bluto may have had a stomachache, but we knew he wouldn't be able to leave well enough alone. An hour later, with a good sweat worked up and Craig complaining endlessly about a kink in his back, we had the giant on a cart and were hauling him into the examination area. This was the part I hated most about my job. Craig. Every now and then, he'd hit the unconscious animals. If, say, their doped muscles would roll their legs over his working area, he'd drop an F-bomb, punch them in the chest, and then shove the limb out of the way. It's hard to explain unless you've seen it. It's a power trip for a guy like Craig to be able to pummel a 300-pound animal without repercussions. If I said anything about it, he'd tell me that I wasn't built for zoo work and that if the sight of a little violence bothered me, I should stay the hell away from the lion's cages at feeding time. Blood never bothered me. Meat ripping never bothered me. Unnecessary stupidity, that bothered me. The thing was, Bluto was suffering from more than a tummy ache. We had a look. We used the automatic bots to have a look. We even forced the poor sleeping bugger to vomit. There was a bit of dough in there, sure, but nothing his stomach couldn't handle. Craig started getting tense. As the one with the higher pay grade and reputation, he knew he'd be held responsible. He called me names that I choose not to repeat here. He called Bluto similar. He swore at his instruments, he slapped the poor beast, and his examinations were brutal. Eventually, I saw an idea forming behind his eyes. He told me everything was going to be okay. We carted Bluto back to his cave and went home. The next day, things were not okay, but Craig kept smiling at me and avoiding calls from management. On the third day, Joan, the half-owner, came down herself. I tried to tell her I was worried, but Craig stepped in with that please-punch-me grin. By the time he was done talking, she'd been convinced to buy him a lobster dinner and they'd split a bottle of wine that would have cost a good chunk of my paycheck. That same evening, the fledges arrived. I signed for the package, but when I first opened it, I thought someone had flipped a shipping label somewhere, that we were getting something intended for the zoological garden in Shanghai. Hell if I know where Craig found them. I'd read about fledges online. Chinese technology, though, illegal in the U.S. A combination DNA replicator and high-speed incubator used by shady zoos to keep up stock. They'd been originally created to deal with pandas that wouldn't copulate, but the fledge eggs were also designed to provide a more stable animal. More docile, more human-friendly, more patient than perhaps the original specimen had been. By the time Craig stumbled back into the exam room, I'd figured out that it wasn't a mistaken delivery. That he was 
just going to kill and replace Bluto. So we argued. We argued a lot. Craig was a little drunk, but I was a lot pissed. Eventually, I stormed out, leaving Bluto with the madman. I couldn't just go home, though. I drove my Fiesta around the block seven times, sat in the parking lot swearing at my steering wheel, and then went back in. For Bluto's sake. You see, I'd prepared a speech. Craig, I would say. I'm going to Joan. I'm going to the whole board of directors, in fact. Not only will they hear about that gray market technology you bought to save your own skin, they will hear about every stupid little misstep you've made in the last decade. The problem, of course, was that Craig was dead. I guess in his tipsiness he'd underdosed the last batch of tranks. He must have gotten a few more into Bluto's system, though, as the beast was snoring in the middle of the floor. Despite the redosing, however, Craig was spread across most of the room's surfaces. It looked like feeding time at the hyena cage. Now, who was going to get fired for that bit of stupidity? Not my idiot supposed supervisor. He was already dead. Well, what could I do? Like I said, the sight of blood no longer bothered me that much. Seeing Craig's insides wasn't exactly a pleasant experience, but really no worse than having to deal with the flow of beef from the prep area we called the kitchen. That's where most of the corpse ended up, actually. Using the fledges is a simple process. Pull the strip from the exterior, make sure you rub it up against the DNA of the intended subject, and wait. We had to eventually call in a specialist to surgically remove a tumor from Bluto's belly, but it didn't require much arguing. The new Craig is much more agreeable. Oh, Jerd. Oh, Jerd. You bloody bastard. <laughs> Happy December. We're going to move on to the food critic segment. Are you ready for this, Aaron? I'm ready for this. Good. Because this book is scary. It's the December episode, not the, the Halloween episode. Why the scaries? Because it's for Paul L. Cooley. Oh, okay, then. Okay, so this book is The Black Arrival. Dun-dun-dun. Dun-dun-dun. This is volume two in the Black series, but you don't have to have read book one for book two to make sense. Because Cooley is awesome with what he's doing here. Um, book two, I say book two, The Black Arrival, is a paraquel to the first book, The Black. They Parts of them happen at the same time. It's not a true sequel. Parallel. No, it's a paraquel. Quarterquel? No. This isn't the Hunger Games! No. This is the black. This is worse. Oh. Yeah. I'm going to give you the lowdown on this book. An offshore drilling operation off of Papua New Guinea has brought up the sweetest oil you could imagine. It's not going to take like, almost any refining to make this useful. Sweetest. Do they taste it? No. But it's pure. Oh, that's good. Yeah. And they have taken a one barrel of it, and it's going. They're sending it to Houston, Texas, for testing to really do analysis on it and everything, find out just how good of a find this is. So we're following what's going on at the uh, the Houston Analytical Laboratories. Hal, <laughs> it's called Hal. Hal. Yes, we're finding out what's happening at Hal when this oil arrives there, and okay. we find out that this oil <laughs> is not oil. Uh-oh. No. And 
death ensues at length. Alrighty then. Sounds like fun. Not for the characters. Speaking of the characters, who are they? Uh, mostly they're the scientists at the labs. We do have a couple people that aren't exactly scientists. There's um, one who's kind of the administrative type. Mm-hmm. Um, since they're going to be doing a rush job over a weekend, one scientist has had to bring her teenage daughter because mm-hmm. uh, she's got custody. You know, dad's not around, whatever. So we've got we've got a little bit of a mix, but it's mostly the scientists themselves. So they know when things are going wrong that things are just weird when they get their test results. Um, but it's they're a very diverse group. They have different qualifications, different specialties, very different personalities. But you know, they're buddies. And personalities felt well thought out, realistic. Characterization was it done well? It was done really well. Um, I wouldn't necessarily go so far to say that. I could have told who was speaking just by the dialogue itself, mm-hmm. but their actions are what really spoke for them. Mm-hmm. So, How did you feel the plot flowed in this book? What the, was the pacing like? The pacing was great. Um, I mean, it was once things started to go wrong, they kept going wrong. Um, the only real gripe I had with pacing and stuff was location. I got really lost in the labs. And I... And it, it got to the point where I wasn't even able to keep track of where everybody was. And the next time, you know, you'd have one chapter with this group and one chapter with this group. And then by the time you got back to group one, they were somewhere else completely different. And I just, I, it got a little frustrating. Okay. Fair enough. But I still was interested because the black, it, whatever you want to call it, it could go just about anywhere. Mm Mm-hmm. So there was always just that looming dread of how is it going to find them where they are now? Mm-hmm. And perhaps some of it was to give you that feeling of chaos. Where are they? What is it? Maybe mm-hmm. it might have been intentional. It, it may have been. Um, it also may have just been me going brain dead. That happens. Yeah, because I think I got a little bit of the black in my ear and it just started to eat away at the inside. Well, that explains a lot. Damn you, Cooley. Yeah. <laughs> So how would you overall rate this book? On the scale of one to five spoons? On the scale of one to five spoons. It could say, I would say a solid four, but since the black is kind of oozy, it's going to get a gelatinous four. four Great spo- rating. Four spoons. Four spoons, Great yeah. rating. Um, and I didn't ask you before, um, what age group is this recommended for? Is this an adult novel? Is this... Young adult YA, where would you place this? It's I wouldn't say it's necessarily geared towards YA, but I'd say anybody who can handle a little bit of gore, a little bit of suspense, would be okay to read it. So Hunger Games and up? I would say so, yeah. Yeah, if you, if you can handle something like the Hunger Games or even like the later Harry Potter books, I think you'll be able to handle the black. You're just going to have a sincere feeling of dread throughout. And you'll never want to see oil ever again. No, or smell bacon again. I will never read this book. Because bacon. Okay. <laughs> Aaron's never going to read this book. Sorry, Cooley. I love but, you, Cooley, but I, I love bacon. But everybody else listening to this, go read it. You should. I should. Yeah. Thank you for the review. You're welcome. Hey, guys. Guys. Where are you? Promo up. And we need more corn.
in Empire of Bones, Commander Jared Mertz and Princess Kelsey scored a stunning victory over the Savage Pale Ones. Yet, they paid a terrible price for it, one that left their ship crippled and changed the princess forever. As Kelsey struggles to master the combat enhancements the Pale Ones forcibly implanted inside her, and Jared works feverishly to resurrect an ancient battlecruiser, they discover the Pale Ones aren't as defeated as they seemed. Jared and Kelsey race to unravel the secrets behind the ancient rebellion that destroyed galactic civilization and thwart unseen foes determined to take their new ship and their lives. If they fail, an entire planet dies. Veil of Shadows, Book 2 in the Empire of Bones Saga, written by Terry Mixon. And we are back. Yay. I bought corn. Oh, good. I think we were out of that. Mm-hmm. Awesome. That I ate it. Well, that that didn't help much. You probably should have cooked it first. Well, I do have this other can. You know what's in it? What? I don't know. It doesn't have a label. It's a mystery. Ooh. Sounds like it must be time for our mystery meals segment. Here we go. Don't forget, these are unedited. So, yeah, you're probably going to hear cats jingling. Cats don't jingle. Us laughing. We do that. So, yeah. This is a scene from C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when Lucy first goes through the wardrobe and discovers Narnia. See, I haven't heard this yet. Oh, yes, this. I'm the only one that Uh knows this. Uh And so, don't forget, these get unedited. Apologize in advance if you hear cats. Or cursing. Hopefully you can keep from giggling better than me. No, no, don't even bother trying to keep. Just do it, just let (laughs) it go. Let it go. Keep what? Going. (laughs) No reading of it, just read it. Okay, 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 okay. They looked into a room that was quite empty, except for one shiny wardrobe. The sort that has a lotion in the door. (laughs) (laughs) There was nothing else in the room at all, except a dead pseudopod on the windowsill. (laughs) Nothing there, said Peter, and they all spat out again. (laughs) All except Lucy. (laughs) Lucy doesn't spit. (laughs) She stayed behind because she thought it would be worthwhile trying the door of the wardrobe, even though she felt almost sure that it would be poopy. (laughs) 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 To her surprise, it opened quite provocatively. And two mothballs <laughs> defenestrated out. <laughs> Looking into the inside, she saw several donuts hanging up. <laughs> Why would you hang up your donuts? Because they're on pegs. Try to turn them into bagels. <laughs> Mostly long fur donuts. <laughs> They've been in there a while. <laughs> There was nothing Lucy liked so much as the smell and feel of truck. (laughs) She immediately flatulated into the wardrobe and got in among the coats and rubbed her chin against them, leaving the door open, of course, because she knew that it is very foolish to disseminate oneself into any wardrobe. Well... Soon she went further in and found that there was a second row of coats hanging up behind the first one, 
It was almost quite dark in there, and she kept her shins stretched out in front of her <laughs> so as not to bump her gallbladder into the back of the wardrobe. <laughs> How do you stretch your shins? <laughs> she took a step further in, and then two or three steps, always expecting to feel a xylophone against the tips of her fingers. <laughs> but she could not need it. <laughs> this must simply... <clears throat> this must be a simply terrible wardrobe, thought Lucy, still going further in and pushing the soft folds of the coats aside to make room for her. Then she noticed that there was something tobogganing under her feet. <laughs> I wonder, is that more mothballs? She thought. Stooping down to feel it with her uvula. <laughs> but instead of feeling the pungent smooth wood of the wardrobe. Oh, I need to redo that sentence. But instead of feeling the pungent smooth wood of the floor of the wardrobe, she felt something soft and powdery and extremely embellished. <laughs> This is very queer, she said, and went on a step or two further. Next moment, she found that what was rubbing against her face and hands was no longer soft fur, but something hard and rough and even melodramatic. <laughs> <laughs> Why, it is just like buttons. <laughs> what? Like what? Why, it is just like butts on trees. <laughs> exclaimed Lucy. <laughs> I just made it worse. And then she saw that fierce... I'm sorry. And then she saw that there was a pharmacy ahead of her. Not a few inches away where the back of the wardrobe ought to have been, but a long way off. Something cold. And disappointing was falling on her. A moment later, she found that she was modulating in the middle of a wood at night time with snow under her feet and sheep falling through the air. Say that again. What was that? Sheep falling through the air. <laughs> Lucy oh, felt. <laughs> Lucy felt a little frightened, but she felt very inconsequential and excited as well. So did the sheep. She looked back over her shoulder, and there, between the dark tree trunks, she could still see the open doorway of the wardrobe, and even catch a glimpse of the empty room from which she had set out. She had, of course, left the handcuffs open. <laughs> For she knew that it is a very silly thing to shut oneself into a boat. <laughs> to the brig! <laughs> Where the handcuffs are. <laughs> it seemed to be still daylight there. I can always get back if anything goes wrong, thought Lucy. She began to urinate forward. <laughs> crunch! <laughs> crunch! Crunch! Over the snow and through the wood toward the other light. In about 1,138 minutes, <laughs> she reached it and found it was a lamppost. 
As she stood looking at it, wondering why there was a lamp post in the middle of a wood, and wondering what to do next, she heard the pitter-patter of feet coming toward her, and soon, after a very bloody... <laughs> after that... I'm sorry. <laughs> and soon after that, a very bloody person <laughs> stepped out from among the trees into the light of the lamppost. <laughs> the end. Done. It's a cliffhanger. <laughs> very bloody person. The end. It's well a murder mystery. <laughs> it's a mystery. Murder mystery needle. <laughs> Like butts on trees! <laughs> and we are back. Welcome back to the edited material. Well, it's time to start winding down, so we have a, one small announcement. At the end of this month, yes, the end of this year, prompt number six is going to close. <laughs> We're going to stop getting mailman stories. I can't handle it. Maybe you should go lie down. No. I can do this. Because we still have one more month of this, so prompt number six. Open up until the end of the month. Shh, it's okay. Why is everyone afraid of the mailman? Why is everyone afraid of the mailman? Tell us. We need to know. We also have prompt number seven open. I'm apparently over prompt number six now. Yeah, it's you're in, good. It's in the past. I yeah. need to stop living in the past. Prompt number seven. Write a story featuring a member of the podcast crew as a main character. Be gentle. Oh, no. Be mean. Make me a villain. I like being a villain. Make me some sort of fluffy animal companion. You already are. I'm not so fluffy. Depends on who you ask. Your hair does get quite poofy. I'm not going to pet it. Okay. And that is all. We're done. Indeed. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to send us stuff. And we'll use it to feed the masses. Thank you for listening to The Melting Podcast. You can check out our website with submission guidelines and current prompts at themeltingpodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Melting Podcast. Or you can email us themeltingpodcast at gmail.com. The Melting Podcast is released under a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, which means you're free to copy it and share it, as long as you don't change it, don't sell it, and always link back to the website. Sound effects are by the Free Sound Project. And our theme is by Drew Rich Creek. Send us stuff!